couple things I want to draw your attention to before we jump into the text. Um, you may have seen one of the slides before the service started that uh, talked about if you have an iPad or a smartphone, you can uh, link into the website. Uh, you see the website up there, and it has service at New Hope. Uh, service.newhope. If you have a smartphone or an iPad with you this morning, you'll be able to link into the website and then it'll automatically download for you the message notes from this morning. That's something that we're going to have going on an ongoing basis now with the technology available. We want to make use of it. And um, it will also have in it the images that'll go up on the screen. So if there's a map up on the screen, that will automatically load onto your iPad or your smartphone, as well as the different verses that we're using this morning. And then along with that, you'll automatically have the announcements that were posted this morning too. So it's an all-in-one package. Can't beat that. Um, one thing that Tori mentioned this morning when she was doing announcements is uh, the men's study that I'm leading. Starting on November 16th, when this launches, guys, um, the study that we're doing is called Experiencing God, something that I went through um, back in the 90s when I was in my early 30s, and I totally thought I had God figured out. I figured I knew how he operated, been through Bible college, had served 10 years in ministry at that point, and then I went through the Experience in God study, and it totally reshaped my thinking of understanding how God speaks. So if you're looking to understand how God speaks in your life, how to hear the voice of God, how to discern when he's speaking to you, I invite you to be part of that. So that 6.30 in the morning, you slackers, get up and come with me, okay? All right, and the one at 7 o'clock at night, if you can't make the 6.30 in the morning, you can join us on that one. We'll just call you leg shavers or something, all right? We'll be real gentle to you guys that have to come at 7 o'clock. But I understand, everybody can't make the different times. So 6.30 in the morning or 7 o'clock at night. And this experience in God's study is based on the life of Moses and who he who heard God's voice And we're going to do a study through how to hear God's voice. It's 11 weeks long. It's not for the faint of heart. I see a few heads nodding because you've probably been through that study. It's not an easy study, but it takes a real commitment. So if you're willing to jump in, don't hesitate. The books are in the back of the auditorium after the service. And there's sign-up pads so you guys can sign your names on the list there. Well, what we're going to jump into is, um, is a difficult text and... Typically, I'm able to teach in a very linear fashion. This is is quite ethereal in its context. We're only going to take a couple verses on this morning because of what is stated here. What I want to ask you to do is pray with me that God will speak the things that he wants you to hear. And uh, then we'll jump in, okay? Father, it doesn't catch you by surprise that each and every person who's here in this auditorium this morning is here. You're not surprised. You are sovereign and you rule over all and you're omnipresent and you're omniscient. And because you have all those characteristics, nothing catches you by surprise. What you have to say to us this morning may catch us by surprise though. Father, I ask that you would speak through this text that was written 2,000 years ago, and that will only happen through the working of your Holy Spirit. So I'll, I'll echo what Michael said, Father. I pray that your Holy Spirit would invade this place, and that we would be sensitive to what you have to say, and what you want us each personally to hear. I ask God that you would do your work. 
It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, first creative act of God. Think with me about this. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved over the surface of the waters. Genesis 1.3, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Genesis 1.4, God said that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. When we think of the arrival of God and the Shekinah glory that's associated with him, we have to think of this moment in time. Because the light that is spoken of in verse 3 is not sunlight. It's not a luminaire. It was the presence of God. The sun wasn't created until the fourth day, according to what Genesis says. So that light source showed up when God was on the scene and reshaping or shaping what was form and void. Scripture says this, verse 3, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The darkness that's spoken of there is not like the darkness that's in that room if you walk in there and turn off the light switch. It's spiritual darkness. As a matter of fact, the words that are used specifically say spiritual darkness was on the face of the deep. The next phrase says, the earth is without form and void. The Hebrew term for that is tohu abohu. It means wasteland, garbage dump, place without shape. So God's Shekinah glory, the light of God, shines on planet earth, and God begins his creative work. So the first time we see God's light presence, it's in a creative act to bring life out of what was no life before. It didn't exist. So into darkness, God brought light. Creation's done. Man and woman are in the garden. And then sin enters the garden. You have to ask yourself, first of all, where did that come from? How did that arrive in perfection? But that's for another story we're not going to go into today. So sin arrives. It's in the garden. And we see the presence of darkness re-enter. And from that point forward in time, darkness and light are doing a battle. Man lives with sin every day. It's cast a very long shadow so that many thousands of years later, you and I are still living in the midst of a world that has the shadow of sin over it. You only have to watch the news for a little bit or pick up the Lansing State Journal to know what I'm talking about to understand that you're surrounded by people acting out sinful behavior. The ancients knew and understood this truth much more so than what we understand today. As a matter of fact, if you look at the writings of the prophets, you understand that they had a total grasp on this. I'm going to show you a quote from Isaiah, although it's quoted in the book of Matthew. Look with me on the screen at Matthew 4.14. Matthew is quoting Isaiah. The people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. So Isaiah, generations before Jesus' arrival, looking forward in time through prophecy, said there's a moment when that brilliant light is going to arrive, and those who are living in sin, who are sitting in the midst of darkness, there's going to be a great light in their presence. 
Jump forward with me to where we are at in the very first week of this study, the portrait. John 1, look on the screen, John 1, 4, and 5. In him was life, speaking of Jesus, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now, what we're discovering as we work through this study in the book of John is layer upon layer, dimension upon top of dimension. It's being peeled away for us to understand the nature and character of God. We're being brought into a deeper relationship with God. Every Sunday you hear this material taught. You're going deeper and deeper and deeper into your relationship with God because you're learning more about his nature and character. But this information is also a dividing line for many people because there is no gray area with God. It's black and white. It's very definitive. And so it becomes a point of definitive repercussions in that some individuals choose to say, I cannot accept that. There's no way. God doesn't behave like that. That's not the God that I know. And others who study the Bible would say, I'm in. I get it. I totally understand it. So it does become a very clear dividing line. Where we find ourselves this morning in John chapter 8 is in the midst of a conflict between Jesus and his adversaries with the exact same conflict that we live in today. Individuals who are faced with the reality of who this light is, this one called Jesus, and they're left with a choice. Do I accept this or do I reject this? What do I do with this? Because they virtually, as you've seen so far last week, especially and the week before, they virtually misinterpret everything that he's saying. So this is very important for us because these were smart people who were misunderstanding what he's saying. This means we must especially concentrate our minds to focus on this text. What is Jesus saying here? So let's get caught up to where we left off. Last week we were in the temple. It was the Feast of the Tabernacles. Let me show you an image on the screen of the temple itself so you understand where Jesus was at when he was meeting with these individuals. What you're looking at is the courtyard of the temple, this walled dimension that surrounds a very tall building. Outside of that wall would have been the area called the Court of the Gentiles where people like yourself, myself could go, but we couldn't go inside the courtyard. That was only for Jewish people. So the first courtyard that you enter is called the woman's courtyard, and that's the area where Jewish men and Jewish women could gather, but the next courtyard was the court of men, and women couldn't go beyond that. Uh, We find in John chapter 8 this morning that Jesus is in the courtyard of the women. That's where the treasury is at. It wasn't an actual treasury building. They had 13 different receptacles set up so people could put their offerings in it to support the work of the temple. And so they had offering boxes like we have offering boxes. And individuals could choose where they wanted their money to go. That's where we find Jesus this morning when he makes this statement. So if you have your Bibles open, I'm going to be in John chapter 8 and verse 12. Then Jesus again spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So this setting, the Feast of the Tabernacles, is where Jesus makes this statement. He's in the courtyard, and there's something remarkable that takes place during the Feast of the Tabernacles. A couple weeks ago, we already talked about how they had this ceremony where they carried water from the river, and they brought the water and dumped it on an altar to remind them that God provided water for them in the wilderness. 
There was something else that took place in the midst of this feast that was a reminder for people. There were four very large candelabras that were set upon large poles. And we're not talking about candelabras like you might see in someone's home on their dining room table. These candelabras were so large that they had to actually put a ladder against the pole for a man to climb up to light them. And they put out such a glow, such an orange spotlight against the dark sky that the ancient historians said there was not a courtyard in all of the city of Jerusalem that wasn't reflecting the glow of these candelabras this brilliant light that was being put out. So the purpose in this candelabra being lit in the midst of the Feast of the Tabernacles was to remind the people of God that he had been their pillar of fire in the wilderness during the times of wandering. They left Egypt. They're wandering and God was guarding and guiding them by being a pillar of fire For them to see him move, they would respond. When he moved, they moved. When he stopped, they stopped. So in the midst of this, Jesus stands up and says, I am the light of the world. So in the context of all this celebration going on, Jesus makes this declaration that comes with absolute stunning force. For them to hear him say that, they immediately understood what was going on. Now let's understand it the way they understood it. Let's think in terms of the way that a first century Jew might have thought of this. I don't know what you think of when you think of a pillar of fire. I have an image that comes in my mind and I bet it's different than the way that it's been portrayed in Hollywood. Because when I think of God's pillar of fire, I think of something massive. I think of something monumental, never seen before by man. This image that you see on the screen was captured by a photographer at the explosion of a volcano. In the midst of the explosion of a volcano, there was an electrical storm that took place. That's a pillar of fire. Okay? Our God is huge. He's magnificent. Scripture says that there were three million people approximately that were wandering through the wilderness when God was guiding them. It also says that the pillar of fire was so large that it cast a shadow over the entire population of Israel so that none of them were in the sunlight. They were all in the shade. And in the Middle East, you need the shade. So how big does that pillar have to be to shade three million people who are moving through the wilderness? You're talking about something massive. That's why they lit these four large candelabras trying in some way in their own technology to emulate this presence of God. And in the midst of it, you have Jesus standing up and saying, I am that light source. I am the light of the world. So what's being said here? This inexhaustible source of light. He's saying, truth can be distinguished through me. I am the light that shines light into darkness. And you can determine truth and darkness based on my ability to broadcast this light. But also, direction can be established. I will move like when the pillar of fire moved. He's saying, I am that one that when I move, you move. And when I stop, you stop. But also, the protector. The pillar of fire was for protection. God placed the pillar between the Israelites and their enemies. So when Jesus is making this declaration, it's a monster declaration to say, I am and the light of the world. 
That's what ticked off the Pharisees to understand that he said that in the context of what they're celebrating. Now, he doesn't leave it hanging in the air like some ethereal statement. There's an immediate consequence to what he said. There's a consequence, an effect, if you will, to his capacity as the light. What does he say next? I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. Now, following him is an appropriate thing to do. If you're in darkness and you need to see your way out, you're looking for the light source. So you're going after that light. You want to follow that light. That's where our response would be. So just as Israel followed the pillar of fire, when God moved, they moved, Jesus calls us to follow him. And it's not a casual following. In the context of this statement, we're talking about complete submission. Can you imagine in your mind that when God's pillar of fire moved in the wilderness wanderings and he moved across the wilderness, there were some that would stand behind and say, well, that's good, God. You keep going. I'll catch up to you later. It's not going to happen. When God moved, they moved. So God calls us to complete submission. He does not expect and he does not accept half-hearted followers, those who are casually in Receiving him as Savior, but not following him as Lord, doesn't work. Jesus uses a very specific word when he says, I want you to follow me. The word is akalothea. Look with me at the definition. A particle of union. If you're joined together, you can't separate and go opposite directions. If you're a follower, an akalothea, you're going to be in the same way with that person. You're joined together. So when Jesus says, I am the light source, and if you're going to akalathea me, you're not going to walk in darkness. I don't find that our Jesus at all is interested in making salvation easy. That's a myth. He wants it authentic. Yes, grace is free. And God has completely surrendered the Son to die for our sins and invited us into relationship. But there's nothing really all that easy about it, especially if you're trying to be authentic and genuine. Your Jesus actually chased away individuals who said they wanted to akalathea him, but they didn't really mean it. Do you see this rich young man who was a businessman that came to Jesus? We see this story in which he had wealth beyond measure, Scripture says, extremely wealthy. He came to Jesus and said, I'm excited to be your follower. I want to go to your church. And Jesus said, well, live by the commandments. And he said, well, I've done that since my youth. And Jesus said, well, one thing you lack. Go and sell everything that you have and then come and follow me. Akalathea me. At which point, the businessman turned around and walked away because he wasn't really all that sincere about following Jesus. See, I never hear of pastors today doing that. They have a wealthy businessman come to him and say, I'm excited to join your church. And you'd say to him, no, go ahead and sell everything you can have and then come and join our church. That doesn't happen today. The measure by which Jesus measures his followers is by this definition who's joined with me so that when I move, you move, and when I stop, you stop, and where I shine light and expose sin, you run from sin. See, he wants absolute allegiance and absolute submission. Have you ever read the mission statement of the corporation of Jesus Christ? It's tough. 
Let me show you Jesus' mission statement. Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Can you imagine walking into a business and seeing that mission statement on the wall? It's great that you want to join our corporation, but by the way, you're going to die if you do. You've got to be willing to surrender your life. That's what is meant by akalathea. No wonder people don't flock to this. It's hard stuff when they really understand what's going on. So I said there's an immediate effect to Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me, what's the effect? They will not walk in darkness. They're no longer going to be part of a sinful lifestyle. There's a sense of expectation on God's part that if you're following his pillar of light, you're no longer associating yourself with the darkness. You've been illuminated by Jesus. You're not only reflecting his light, but you look like his light. You're a mirror copy of him. Look with me on the screen, Ephesians 5.8. For you were formerly darkness, but you are, now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So what you're seeing here is another brush stroke in which Jesus is making a stroke on the canvas of what God looks like. This is the second of seven I am statements. We think of God when he's talking with Moses and Moses saying, what shall I call you? And God said, I am that I am. You see Jesus repeating that seven times in the book of John. This is the second one, the second great ego, am I, I am the light of the world. That's the same structure that God used, I am. Now you think at this point that anyone who has previously gone to battle in a debate with Jesus is going to back away. The scribes and Pharisees have been put down in many different debates, but instead what do we find them doing? They're going after him in attack mode because of this statement. And it's an old debate tactic. When you can't win the debate, when you can't win the argument, you begin going after the person and their personality, and that's exactly what's going on here. They're going after Jesus as a personality now. Verse 13, so the Pharisees said to him, you are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. You're a liar. That's what they're saying to him. It's an outrageous claim. We can't possibly accept this. Not only that, you're using circular reasoning. You're speaking about yourself. Do you notice that they're not arguing what he's claiming? They're trying to catch him on a technicality. They can't win the debate, so they're going after a little technicality. And it's very ironic in light of the fact that they just used him as a witness against the woman caught in adultery only moments before. They're saying, you're a great witness. We want you to make a decision about whether or not this woman should die. But now they're saying... Your witness means nothing. We won't accept it. So what's really going on here? There's a challenge of his authority. Who do you think you are? Your words mean nothing. What you say proves nothing. Verse 14, Jesus answered and said to them, if I testify about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I am going, but you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I am not judging anyone. This is where it gets a little ethereal for a moment. It's very interesting to me that Jesus doesn't call forward witnesses. 
See, they've, they've put him on trial, as it were. They're asking him to validate who he is. It's very interesting that Jesus doesn't call forward John the Baptist or the man that was healed at the swimming pool that was a paralytic. He doesn't call forward the thousands of people that he fed in the wilderness or the people that he made wine for up in the wedding. He doesn't call forward any of those individuals. Why? He doesn't need mankind to validate him. He's the ultimate witness. And so he calls forward his own witness. I know where I came from, and I know where I'm going. Why is that significant? Why does he link his testimony with his origin and his destiny? Now, we would say if we witness about ourselves, if we're our own testifier, we probably would be a little biased, wouldn't we? But nobody knows our story better than us. We know where we've been. However, we're dealing with earthly terms when we think of that. We need individuals to show us a birth certificate to say, this is where you came from. This is where you were born. You were born in such and such hospital. I was born in Hackley Hospital in Muskegon. I didn't know that until my mom showed me a birth certificate and said, this is your place of birth when I was a child. So I have an origin. I know what my destiny is because of ultimately I'm going to join Christ in heaven, but I don't know what tomorrow holds Jesus alone can say, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. So he's challenging them to say, how can you possibly challenge my authority when you don't even know where I came from? They're ignorant. They're ignorant of two basic questions, his origin and his destiny. And Jesus alone possesses that knowledge. Think with me of what we just celebrated here, communion, the Lord's Supper, something significant happened that was recorded at the Lord's Supper. Jesus sat down and began washing the feet of his disciples to show them what it looked like to be a servant. If you fast forward to John 13 at the Last Supper, you'll see that something remarkable was stated about Jesus by John. Look with me on the screen. John 13, 2. During supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, therefore Jesus could enter into the next step of what the evening held because he knew where he was from and where he was going. So the argument that he's presenting here is awesome. Here's why. To be a witness of something, you have to actually be a witness, correct? You can't be a witness of something if you haven't actually seen it. Can you imagine going to a courtroom? Maybe you were involved in a car accident and your attorney is suing for damages and you show up because you have to be there to give a report of what happened. The opposition brings in witnesses to testify in the trial but you recognize while you're sitting there, hey, wait, these people were never there at the accident. They're just giving opinions. That's not a witness. You can't call forward a witness if the witness hasn't actually been there. Jesus is a witness. He speaks of the things that he's seen and the things that he's heard. That's why we're calling this the portrait because John 118 says, Jesus is explaining God. Look with me on the screen, John 118. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, meaning Jesus, he has explained him. So Jesus is the ultimate witness. He's come from heaven, 
did what he was supposed to on earth and is going back to heaven. So he's a witness. However, Jesus knew that unbelief is never convinced, and so he said to them, you're judging by the flesh. You're thinking like earthbound people. The word he actually used is sarks. Your judgment is merely human, and it's limited in scope. Now, when you get to this point in this, these verses, you might say to yourself, what's the purpose in this? Where is this going? What's the point of this? What's Mark saying? The very coming of Jesus places individuals into one of two camps. You can't separate them. One of two categories. By his very coming, Jesus placed himself in a position of evaluation. Individuals either choose to stay in the dark and reject everything that he said, or they choose to respond to this, I am the light, and join him. You cannot remain neutral about that. So this is where Jesus wraps it up, verse 16. But even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone in it, but I and the Father who sent me. Even in your law it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. I am he who testifies about myself, and the Father who sent me testifies about me. Essentially what he's saying here is God and I, we're one. We're equal, essential equality. And whatever I judge is going to be rendered jointly by God the Father and myself. But his response still doesn't convince them, so they start challenging about who his daddy is. Go with me verse to, next to verse 19. So they were saying to him, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. Know that what the Pharisees just said to him was an intentional insult. In the Middle East, to challenge someone's paternity, who their father is, is an absolute insult. What they're saying is, you're illegitimate. You don't even know who your father is. We're challenging him because they know that Jesus was born of Mary, who we're told was a virgin. And so they're challenging the very basis of his origin. There's open hostility here. And at this point, the gavel has fallen. There's a judgment that's been made by them. They're rejecting Jesus totally. They have no interest in him. So what do you personally do with this information? You you come in here this morning. You participate in worship. We celebrate communion. And then you hear this proclamation, I am the light of the world. If someone follows me, they will not Walk in darkness. What do you do with that? You see, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world, he's associating himself with that pillar of fire, the Shekinah glory. God, who said, let there be light, shows up again in John 1 as the light of the world. And Jesus, when he leaves this world, now says to you, You're the light of the world. Wow, that's a heavy weight to carry. I'm supposed to be the light of the world? Look with me on the screen. Matthew 5, 14. Speaking to the church, you are the light of the world. I can understand Jesus being the light of the world. He's the fundamental source. How do I be the light of the world? Because we're here as Christ's representatives 
We're the mirrors reflecting him. We're supposed to be showing the world what his light looks like. Look with me on the screen. This is the last two verses I'm going to give you. Ephesians 5.8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Philippians 2.15. Prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. Do you live in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? Anybody want to say that? I I do. I, I know it. It surrounds me. I know it surrounds you. That's the generation that we're living in. So I'm going to ask you this question. How clean is your mirror? How are you doing at reflecting that light? Think about this. You are the light of Christ to the world. Are people seeing Christ when they see you? So you're not the source of the light. You can't do it on your own power. As an example, my voice is being recorded this morning. It's being put on a computer database, be uploaded to the website in a couple days. When people click on the website and they listen to this message, they're going to hear a copy of my voice. They won't hear the original. It'll sound like my voice, but it's not the original. They're not here this morning. They'll hear a copy of the original. That's you. We're a copy of the original. We're the little mirrors that reflect the light of Christ back to the world. So how clean is your mirror this morning? That's why David cried out because he's very aware of this. Oh God, you know my inmost being. You created me. God, would you examine me? See if there's any sinful way in me. This should be a daily request of someone who's following the light. God, examine me. So I'll just ask you the hard question. What is it that might be diminishing your candle power this morning? What is it that might be there that's keeping a block on that light getting out? This is self-evaluation. So I'm going to pray for you right now and pray for myself that we would be willing to go to God and ask him that same hard question because that's a really hard question that David asked. God, would you examine me and show me, is there any wicked way in me? Because I want to carry out that responsibility of being a light to the world. Would you pray with me? Father, we would readily admit this is not entertaining stuff. It's hard. And you wrote it down for a reason because you wanted us to evaluate ourselves. You want us to ask that hard question. Because you said, where we're weak, you are strong. And that your strength is made perfect in weakness. Father, you're looking at an auditorium full of weak people who are made strong through the work of your Holy Spirit. But some of us would readily admit we've got dirt on our mirror and we're not that good at reflecting the light all the time. So God, I ask that you would cause self-examination to take place. I don't know, Father, if it's television shows or if it's schedules, if it's money, whatever there is that's in the way between a strong following of you 
and that darkness that seems to stand between us, God, I ask that you would remove it. I'm praying that for our whole church. For all those that came last night, Father, and for those that were in the 915 service and for this auditorium now, God, that you would make us an incredibly bright torch to this Lansing community. That people would look at us who belong to New Hope and say, there is something special about those people. I am drawn to that light. God, make that true of us. Help us not to easily dismiss this when we leave this morning. We ask all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Hope you have a great week.